Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, everybody. Um, I hope uh, that you're able to hear me. I believe we're connected now to Facebook Live, and this is webyeshiva.org, and this is Daniel Karapkin, and we are studying Morena Vuchim, the guide for the perplexed by Maimonides. We're using the Shlomo Pines edition, um, and uh, it, which is in English, and we are in the middle of chapter 70 of the first section of Morena Vuchim, uh, the last chapters of the first section um, where the Rambam is going to um, engage in some level of disputation. Uh, we are on page 173 in the Pines edition, and we are just going to finish chapter 70, which we began uh, last week. Um, we had pointed out that there are two ways in uh, classical Greek philosophy to, uh, to define God. Um, Aristotle had defined God both as a prime cause and also as a prime mover. And the Rambam was uncomfortable calling God the, the material cause of the world because that creates too much of an association between God and the physical matter of this world. And that's not something that the Rambam is comfortable doing because the Rambam's whole project up until now is to distance material uh, corporealism from God. And so therefore, he's much more comfortable using the term prime mover, and that's going to actually be the more accurate definition that he uses for God, that God is responsible in, in his interaction with the physical reality as we know it, as the mover, the being who causes the motion of all of the celestial spheres and bodies, and ultimately causes our planet to exist, our, our reality to exist. And so, uh, so this was what the Rambam was dedicated to. And in the course of this discussion, he had made reference to a section in Talmud from Tractate Chagiga, which I'm now going to bring onto the screen. Okay. And this is what we had started with last time um, in our discussion, where the Rambam had said um, that there are Shiva Rikiyim, there are Shiva there are seven levels of heaven, and the outermost level of heaven is called Aravot. And this is based on the various psukim in the Torah that the Rambam has made reference to, and contained within that seventh level of heaven, that is the highest and the closest to God, using that Neoplatonic system that we've discussed up until now, um, this highest level called Aravot contains within it, it's a, sort of like a repository of uh, mishpat, uh, sorry, tzedek, mishpat, tzedakah, uh, uh, justice, uh, uh, jurisprudence, and righteousness, 
Ginze Chaim, the Ginze Shalom, the Ginze Bracha, storehouses of life, storehouses of peace, storehouses of blessing. The Rambam hasn't gone through a, a very precise definition of what all of these things are, but these are very, very lofty uh, esoteric concepts, and that God manipulates these forces in order to bring life and well-being to the residents of our physical world. And God, and this is the part that we're going to see presently, this particular passage in the Gemara is of, is of special importance to the Rambam. God also has in this uh, sphere called Aravot, that is closest to him, the souls of the righteous and the spirits and the souls that will eventually be created, and then vital sha'atid hakadosh baruchu lachayot bometim, and the uh, potential due that God will use to resurrect the dead at the allotted time, and so this is where we're up to now. We're on page one hundred seventy-three. The Rambam uh, got, got through telling us in the previous chapter, or the previous paragraph rather, is that the forces that are responsible for generating anything that is related to these things, to generating life, or to generating resurrection, or to generating justice and a sense of law and order in society, those forces are exist on, on, on some kind of transcendent plane in this highest of spheres called Aravot. That's all the Rambam has explained to us up until now. But he wants to uh, sort of, and this may even be somewhat of a tangent from the primary objective of this chapter, which is to define God as the prime mover, but nonetheless it's important for the Rambam because it really does form a core principle, as I will explain in just a moment. Bottom of page 173, uh, the Rambam writes as follows, reflect also that they, meaning the sages enumerated in this list, the soul of the righteous ones, sorry, yeah, uh, the souls of the righteous ones, I should say, and the souls and the spirits that shall be created in the future. Now, what the Rambam is going to pick up on is this language that, that is a bit uh, sort of inconsistent because nishmatan shel tzadikim means the souls of the righteous. Now, what does that mean, the souls of the righteous? How can a person be righteous before they've come into the world? So the Rambam is going to translate nishmatan shel tzadikim, is that this highest level of heaven is considered to be a repository for what happens to souls after a person dies, okay? And ruchot unishamot sha'atid lihi baraot spirits and souls that will eventually be created refers to sort of like the potential of souls that will go into new bodies when a human being is born. So you've got both of those things. And what's interesting is that when we talk about souls of people who have already lived and have passed away, there's only one term that the Rambam, that the Gemara uses, and that is nishmatan, the souls of. Whereas when we talk about the spiritual essence of a person who has not yet been born, the Gemara uses two terms, ruchot and nishamot, that will eventually come into being through, through birth. And so the Rambam picks up on this discrepancy. 
that there's one word for the soul after we die, and there's two words for the soul before we are born. So how do you reconcile that? How sublime, he says, is the notion to him who has understood it. For the souls that remain after death are not the soul that comes into being in man at the time he is generated. I refer you back to chapters 40 and 41, where the Rambam describes the terms nefesh, ruach, and neshama, saying essentially that they are interchangeable terms, but that they refer to different types of life forces. The ruach, for example, is a life force that is common to all animated creatures, including animals and insects, right? But the term neshama refers to a higher level of soul. Sometimes it refers to exclusively the human soul, and sometimes it can refer also to the spirit, or, or and the word nefesh as well, can re refer to a spirit of God, depending on its context. But he basically says over here, for that which comes into being at the time that a man is generated or born is merely a faculty consisting in preparedness or in potential. Whereas the thing that after death is separated from matter is the thing that has become actual, meaning that over the course of a lifetime, a person takes a soul which is merely potentially um, uh, activated and spends a lifetime activating the soul. Now, what do I mean when I say activating a soul? So it's important to note, and this is why this um, tangent is so important to the Rambam to warrant him raising it in a chapter, which is really not the topic of this subject, is because the Rambam's whole thrust of, uh, and, and why he emphasizes the importance of understanding God in the most accurate way possible, is because the whole function of our being endowed with intellect is to raise the level of our intellect with tremendous accuracy of knowledge, such that by the time we have completed living our lives in this world, we have filled our minds with so much truth and knowledge of that which is and that which exists, that we are able to, after we die, uh, uh, give up, relinquish our soul that is now a repository of knowledge, of complete and full knowledge. Now, why is that important? Because for Aristotle, and Rambam is a disciple of Aristotle, and, and all of Aristotle's uh, descendants, as it were, um, the key to immortality is a perfected intellect. This relates to our discussion previously of the active intellect, which is a, an intellectual entity that exists in the ether, in the cosmos, and that when a person dies, their soul which is activated intellect, bonds and uh, exists eternally with this active intellect, and that's the, what exists after us after we die. And so that's the point that the Rambam wishes to make, is that the sages themselves are alluding to this Aristotelian depiction of the soul after death. For the Rambam, the tragedy of a person not using their mind properly during their lifetime is not only a squandered opportunity, but it is also lost immortality. Because if you do not actu activate and actualize your intellect, then you lose out on your soul living 
for all of eternity because the soul then just dissipates. Now, I just want to make a point at when I will finish the paragraph, then I'll make one final point and we'll go on. Um, the latter is identical with the spirit that comes into being. In other words, the word ruach that the, that the sages use, ruach and neshama that they use to talk about the spirit that comes into being when a person is born, that's different. Because of this, the sages have numbered the souls and spirits among the things that come into being. What is separate is, on the contrary, <laughs> one thing only. So there may be multiple components to a living human being, the spiritual entity that enters into a human being when they are born. But the only thing that remains is what we call neshama. And for the Rambam, the definition of neshama is all of the collective knowledge that a person has accumulated over the course of a lifetime. And that is what that is the only component of the human being that exists eternally. We have already made clear the equivocality of the term ruach. He's referring back to chapter 40. We have likewise made clear in the last portion of Sefer Mada the equivocality regarding these terms, that they have multiple meanings depending upon the context. And so before we take we show you where this is, I just want to make one final point, and then we'll look, we'll go on to Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Yisodeh HaTorah, where the Rambam really affirms this and talks about the different components of the soul and what remains of us after we die. The point that I wanted to make is that the question is th that there's a perennial question that is raised by a number of medieval philosophers, both Jewish and non-Jewish, is when we talk about the essence or the makeup of the soul, that, that that which exists of us after we die, is there individuation of the soul or is there non-individuation of the soul? In other words, when we die, does our soul go up to some repository and blends in with all of the other souls so that we don't have any sense of uniqueness anymore? We sort of go back to a collective and there's nothing left of me uniquely? Or does the soul retain its individual entity? It's, is it still individuated? Is there still like the soul of Daniel Karopkin that you can easily discern and pick out after Daniel Karopkin has passed from this world? Or is all of my knowledge that I've accumulated sort of just goes up, you know, up to a repository of collective knowledge and it's all just a pool of knowledge and there's no more individuation? This is a question that most, for most Jewish thinkers, in order to be compatible with what our Chazal tell us, that every single tzaddik is uh, individualized and is unique, that's apparently what our Chazal are telling us, there is this uh, primal uh, emphasis on in the individuation of the neshama. The only one who sort of departs from that in a very radical way is the sage known as the Ralbag or Gersonides, um, who lives uh, uh, after the Rambam lives, but is even more Aristotelian in his thinking than the Rambam himself. Whether or not the Rambam subscribed to the individuation of the soul or not is not clear from this passage. I, the only reason I mention that is because Professor Ivory, in his description of this paragraph, says that his reading of this paragraph leads, leads him to conclude that the Rambam did not believe in, in the individuation of the soul. I don't see that anywhere in this text, and so therefore I have to, with all due respect to Professor Ivory, uh, 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 apologetically say 
that there's nothing conclusive in this in this terse uh, paragraph that would imply one way or the other. And so without any clear indication, we should assume that the Rambam still subscribes to the idea of the individuation of the soul, which is the traditional way of looking at what is left of us after we die. Now, let me just take a look with you. What the Rambam here, when he says, take a look at Sefer Hamada, he's making reference to Hilchot Yisodei HaTorah, the laws of the foundational ideas of the Torah, chapter 4, codes 8 and 9. We'll just read it very, very quickly to get some comprehensive knowledge here. He says, Nefesh kol basar hakel. He says, when we talk about the term nefesh, this is refers to the form that God imbues within the matter of every living creature. We've talked about form and matter multiple times. The human being is possessed of a human soul, which is the form of humanity, and that is what endows the human being with superior intellect over all other creatures. This harkens back to the very first chapter of Moren Nevuchim, where the Rambam says essentially the same thing. When God said, let us make man in our image, this is referring to the nature of his soul and not the nature of any physical feature that man possesses. Kolomar, he says that God wished for man to be able to intellectually apprehend concepts, even immaterial concepts that are transcendent in nature. And God wants man to apprehend these ideas in his intellect because according to Aristotle, you, you are what you think. In other words, whatever you're capable of conceptualizing in your mind is essentially what your intellect becomes. If you are capable of comprehending transcendent ideas and immaterial ideas, ideas that go beyond their corporeal realm, then your soul becomes non-corporeal and transcendent as a result. This, therefore, when God says, let us make man in, his, in our image, he is not referring to the physical image of his eyes, his mouth, his nose, uh, his cheeks, uh, or his jaw, or any other kind of uh, physical uh, attrib attribute. And nor was God referring to the animation that every living creature is endowed with, because that's a different kind of spiritual essence. That's the spiritual essence that is universal to all living creatures through which we are able to, all living creatures, eat, drink, reproduce, uh, have sensory perception, and so forth. But rather, there's a, this is the unique human intellect by which God said, let us make man in our image. The words nefesh and ruach are used interchangeably to describe this kind of human intellect. The 
And therefore you have to be careful when looking at the term that is used in Hebrew, because sometimes it'll mean one thing, it'll mean the anim universal animating force, sometimes it'll refer to, the word nefesh will refer to the unique human intellect, the, the spiritual component of that is uniquely human, and it'll all depend on the context. And then the Rambam writes, this spiritual essence that the human being is endowed with is not comprised of any of the elements such that it is subject to decomposition. And it is not part of the animating force that gives life to every living creature. This intellectual human soul is not dependent upon any elemental construction, nor is it dependent upon the animated force that exists within a human being or any animal, such that because that those things are dependent upon the, 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 the physical body. But rather, says the Rambam, this human soul is an endowment exclusively from God, and therefore, even after the body passes away, and therefore, when the body uh, uh, passes away, and the body is is comprised of the elements, right, of the physical world, and therefore, a person's animated spirit also uh, expires because it's completely dependent upon a body. And, the, and it needs the body in order to survive this animated force, what we call a spirit, that is universal to all living creatures. Once the body breaks down and breaks down into its um, uh, respective elemental uh, uh, properties, the, the animated spirit also expires as well. But lotikare tatsurazo, but this human form, this human intellect, does not expire. Because it does not, it is not dependent upon the animated spirit that is within the human being. But rather this uh, human soul is capable of apprehending uh, transcendent and non-physical ideas, viodat bore hakol, and it is capable of grasping intellectually the concept of God, the omedet le'olam and therefore exists immortally, eternally. Usha amar shlomo and therefore Solomon makes reference to this human soul when he says, v'yashov he'afar al haretz kishehaya, that the, that the uh, dirt, as it were, of the human being returns to the earth from which it came, and the spirit, referring to this human soul, returns to God who endowed it in the first place. So you see here very clearly that the Rambam is consistent in his uh, in the Moren of Uchim and is really building on what he wrote in Mishneh Torah. Let us go on because our time is limited. He says, consider accordingly that the strange but correct notions attained by the speculation of the most sublime of those who have philosophized are found scattered in the Midrashim. And in, really in this paragraph, what the Rambam is making note of is something that he's talked about in his introduction to Mishnah, to uh, the Moren of Uchim, and he's also talked about in his introduction to the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, which is 
that there is such sublime esoteric information contained within the words of our sages, but it's encoded, meaning that Chazal were careful not to openly reveal or to show all their cards to the to the average reader. You have to actually very, very carefully dissect their words in order to understand what they're saying, but it's a worthy endeavor because if you plumb the depths of what our sages are trying to communicate, you will extract very, very complex and esoteric ideas, which are in sync completely with Aristotelian depictions of the human condition and of the immortality of the soul. Let's go on to the next paragraph, because now the Rambam is going to, for the, for the sake of going back to his discussion of God acting as the prime mover of all of the celestial bodies, he's now going to go back to this Gemara in, in Chagiga that we started with to explain how God is the mover of the outermost sphere called Ravot. And now he says, I shall return to the remainder of what I have started out to explain. I shall therefore say that the sages of blessed memory tried by means of the texts of the scriptural verses to furnish proof that the things enumerated by them were found in Aravot. As far as righteousness and justice, they support that righteousness as concepts uh, uh, of social order are found in this realm of Aravot, and they bring scriptural source for it from the book of Psalms. They similarly furnished proof that those things which they enumerated as standing in relation to God, may be exalted, are with him. Now he says, understand this. And it's, it's very not clear what the Rambam means by this statement, but it would seem that what he is trying to communicate is that the rabbis wanted to sort of point out that the reason why this, these concepts of justice and righteousness are contained in the highest most sphere is because these are traits which are most associable to God himself. God wishes, wishes to be known as the God of righteousness, the God of justice, and that's why uh, these, these uh, ideas or attributes are described as dwelling in our abode. Even though God himself, the Rambam has established any kind of external attributes, but nonetheless, because God wishes to be known by the attributes of justice and righteousness, they are at least adjacent to God in the realm of Aravot, the highest realm. They said, therefore, in Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, um, which is a medrash, which I, you have here quoted in Hebrew uh, in uh, source number three, and they, they bas it basically echoes the same idea. That God created seven levels of heaven. But the only uh, one of the seven heavens that God chose to be the place of his dwelling or his resting is Aravot. And they quote the same Pasuk from Tehillim that we saw before. That exalt he who rides on top of Aravot, and we talked about that idea of riding on top. For it is said, extol the rider in the Aravot. This is literally what he says in Pirkei de Rebbe Eliezer, and understand it likewise. Then he that then the, the Rambam now launches into a discussion of something which he promised us he was going to get to, which is Maase Merkava. If you recall, Maase Merkava is the term that the rabbis used in the Mishnah in Chagiga 
saying that it's not something that a person has permission to dwell on unless he is of a very, very high level of scholarship. And even then, it may only be taught to one person at a time. Masei Merkava. And the Rambam had defined this early on in Moren Nebuchim as the study of metaphysics, um, that which is a, a discipline in Aristotelian science. And the Rambam said that that is synonymous with Maasei Merkava because it tries to depict what the structure of the heavens is and how God interacts with the heavens. And of course, this is what he's doing now on a very rudimentary level, allowing us, even, uh, even we who are very basic students of this discipline, to at least have some working knowledge of, of what this is. And so he proceeds to help us understand what the prophet Ezekiel uh, was, uh, was viewing, what he was seeing when he was in the first chapter of Yechezkel, when he sees the vision of the chariot, what is that, how is that depictive in some way of God as the prime mover? So he says, know that a set of beasts that are ridden upon is called chariot. So we know that when you ride a horse, you call the horse a sus. What does it mean to ride a Merkava, to ride a chariot? We are used to, like from the movie Ben-Hur, we're used to thinking that a chariot is a two-wheeled um, carriage that is strapped to a group of horses, and that's how you ride them, right? So the Rambam says that a set of beasts that are ridden upon is called chariot. The word Merkava doesn't necessarily refer to that image of a chariot of a metal chariot or or a wooden chariot that is strapped to horses but rather it could also mean anytime you are riding on any kind of apparatus that utilizes multiple animals to draw you and to give you motion that is called merkava this occurs in frequent repetition and where it says vayesar yosef merkavto that yosef made ready his chariot or in the second chariot from the book of genesis or pharaoh's chariots from the book of exodus a proof that this term is applied to a number of beasts is found in the dictum from the first book of kings it talks about the economics of purchasing horses in egypt it said that one horse costs 150 pieces of silver and that a chariot of horses costs 600 pieces of, of silver. It says, So what do you see from here? If one horse is 150 and a Merkava is 600, how many horses comprise a Merkava? Four horses. Four times 150 is 600. Now, why is this relevant? Because we know from the book of Yechezkel, as we take a look in the, just one example, uh, from the first chapter of Yechezkel, uh, verse 5, source number 6, umitocha, that Yechezkel describes his vision of God's chariot as demut arba chayot, was an image of four animals. That was sort of the four different sides of the chariot of God, had four different kinds of faces, one a human face, one, uh, one an eagle, you know, and all different kinds of, one a lion, and all different faces. And it, it had the following four faces. So we're, we're not going to get into a detailed description of those four faces right now, but he says this is a proof that the term chariot is applied to four horses. So when we say that the rabbis 
described the term Maasei Merkava as the act of God's chariot, even though that term Merkava is not found in, uh, in, in, in the Tanakh, we therefore mean that they're talking about this image that Yecheskel is seeing, which has four sides to it, or four types of creatures attached to that which God is riding. With regard to this, I say that since it is said in accordance with what is said in Scripture, that the throne of glory was borne by four animals, the sages, may their memory be blessed, called it a chariot, a Merkava. They thus likened it to a chariot that is made up of four individual creatures. This is the limit to which the speech advances in this chapter. In other words, what is the extent of what I'm going to describe right now? Now, what is the significance of four? And why does the Rambam harp on this point specifically now? Uh, it's not 100% clear, but it does seem that the Rambam is preparing us for a more in-depth discussion of the Merkava, of the, or the, or of the Kisei HaKavod, of the, the throne of God, which is four-faceted in some way. And the different commentaries, as we'll see, point to later portions in the Moren Nebuchim, where the Rambam talks about the four different aspects of physical reality. And what the Rambam may be referring, and the Rambam in the 10th the chapter of the second section has an extensive discussion of the four-pronged aspect of our physical reality. A, because there are four elements, earth, wind, fire, and water. Uh, there are four celestial spheres, even though the Rambam had explained to us that there are really nine or 10 celestial spheres, but he says they can be broken down in more general terms to four spheres. There are four causes, like we learned about uh, when we learned uh, chapter 69 in the Moren Nebuchim. There are multiple uh, uh, principles of four that comprise the physical makeup of our world, and therefore the Rambam feels it appropriate to tie that into the discussion of the chariot, because all of metaphysics of Aristotle is linked to the number four in describing physical reality. But he says there is no doubt that there are many other intimations with reference to this subject. In other words, there's a lot more to talk about here. However, the purpose of this chapter, toward which the argument was repeatedly brought back, is that the dictum, the rider of the heavens, God is rochev ba'aravot, he rides on top of aravot, the outermost sphere, signifies he who makes the encompassing heaven revolve and who moves it in virtue of his power and his will. God is not part of the physical world, that God is not pantheistic, as we explained last time, but rather God is above it and is responsible for its motion. A similar interpretation should be given to the rest of the verse, and which goes back to um, the verse that we made reference to from uh, the end of Deuteronomy, Ein kakel yeshurun, there is no God like Jeshurun, rochev shamayim be'ezrecha, that God rides the heavens when he comes to your aid, uvega'avato shechakim, and in his great uh, sense of loftiness, or his great sense of excellence, is how Pines translated, his excellence is in the highest heavens. Meaning that in virtue of his excellency, he makes the skies revolve, bringing out the first of them, which is Aravot, as we made clear in our discussion of the word riding, and explained the remainder of it in our discussion of the word excellency, Uvega'avato. For all the heavens move as parts in virtue of the movement of the highest heaven, that is the daily movements of the heavens, they, everything that moves, moves by the ultimate 
um, movement of God moving the outermost sphere, which moves the sphere just below it, etc., etc. And this great power of his is that which moves the whole. Because of this, scripture calls it ga'avato, God's loftiness, God's lofty level. It doesn't mean that God is prideful, but rather it means that God is elevated above it all. This notion should always be present in your mind with regard to new matters about which I shall speak, for it is the greatest proof through which one can know the existence of the deity. I mean the revolution of the heaven as I shall demonstrate. Understand this. What the Rambam is doing is is, is preparing us for a discussion, a more in-depth discussion of metaphysics when we start the second section of Moren Nebuchim, which will be in a few weeks from now, assuming that we can finish the first section when he con concludes his discussion about the Mutakalimun and his differences with them. But for now, he says, this will have to suffice. I want you to realize, he says, that the most important principle that one needs to know about uh, as far as God relating to our physical world is that he is the prime mover. Even more important than God being the prime cause is God being responsible for the motion of everything that moves and lives within our physical existence. So this is where we'll hold it for here. This concludes chapter 70 of Moren Avuchim, and we will conclude Bezrat Hashem the next time. So I hope that you're able to get something out of this chapter. Wish you all a good day and a good week. Take care, everybody. Rabbi.